0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On
1: Wednesday, June 12th, 2019, Lighthouse welcomed the authors Sheila Hetty, Helen McDonald, Donald Margulies, Melissa Thebos, Ross Gay, and Rachel Cusk as part of
0: the visiting authors reading at LitFest 14, emceed by Lighthouse co-founder and
2: executive director Michael Henry. All right, now to the main event. Okay, so we have six amazing visiting authors. Um, I'm so proud to have these people here. They are incredibly talented writers, wonderful people, and they are all really, really super nice, which is really important. Okay, so first up is Sheila Hetty. She's going to be reading first. She is the author of eight books, including the novel Motherhood, which was recently named a Best Book of 2018 in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, New York Magazine, How Should a Person Be, the Story Collection, the Middle Stories, and the novel Tickner, she is a co editor of the New York Times bestseller, Women in Clothes. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including The New Yorker, Granta, The London Review of Books, N1, McSweeney's, and Harper's. Please give a warm welcome for Sheila Hedy.
1: I don't need that for my phone. Um, <laughs> Uh, hi, everybody. Um, I'm gonna read a short story from my first book, uh, the collection The Middle Stories. Um, it's on my phone because I didn't think to bring that book with me. Um, cut and paste, here we go. This story is called The Man From Out of Town. Uh, and the book is called, yeah, I said that already. The Man From Out of Town. Since his first day in town, The man had been looking for a nice girl to spend good times with, but none of the girls would have him. He wasn't sure why, but suspected it had to do with his status. The waitress who served him corroborated this when she called him a bum, even though he was not living on the street and he had two suits. Not until his roommate found out the cause of his sorrowful mood did he call up a girl he had known from the park and invite her over for a dinner of pork and mashed potatoes with nutmeg. It was her high ass that mysteriously lifted itself up to her waist that caused the man to see what a nice girl she was and how pleasant she would be to spend good times with. <laughs> she also had a sweet smile and some pretty funny things to say. And whenever she laughed, the sun would stream a last dying ray in through the window. Noticing all this, the roommate kept playing good tunes and by the end of the night, the man and the girl were dancing together and she was laughing into, d- into his shoulder, a good sign. In the morning, she sat on the couch in his denim shirt and yesterday's underwear, and her voice seemed deep when she said, I'm going to be late for work. It's Sunday, though. Still. And she looked out the window, and the grayness of the day convinced her. Wandering into his room, she found her suit and zipped it up, and left his apartment with a goodbye shrug. Following his eyes as she walked to the bus stop, the man knew this was not the girl who would be agreeable to spending good times with him. It was not easy to explain. In the afternoon, he walked down the boardwalk, drinking warm soda from a red and white cup that was waxy on the outside and gradually melting, when a man with a dog caught up to him and threw his arm around his shoulder and asked in a jaunty voice what the matter was. The man, who was new in town, was startled because he did not expect city people to care about each other, but he answered, saying, It's that the woman who came over last night seemed to really like me, but she left this morning without making plans to see me again. I know what it's like. I thought it must be women that were troubling you because of that troubling look on your face. You ought to come to where I work tonight because there are plenty of pretty ladies where I work. Where do you work? At a dance club? Oh no, said the man who was from a small town. I don't mean that I want to pay a woman to take off her clothes. That night, as he sat in a booth by the wall, a tall voluptuous woman with red hair went and sat across from him. When she spoke, her voice was tiny and girlish, and when he spoke back, her eyes lit up, knowing a good man when she saw one. If he found her interest in him any consolation, he did not show it and continued to order drinks that cost $7. (laughs) Let me put that next one on my tab, she said, and adjusted her body in such a way that her breasts raised themselves parallel to the table. The man did not fail to notice this. (laughs) Would you like to come home with me tonight, he said. Growing suspicious, she said, I thought you were a different sort of man. That's what Henry told me, and now you ask me the question everyone asks. I'm so ashamed, he responded sincerely. I didn't mean it that way, but I don't like being alone, and you seem like a kind woman who would be a pleasure to spend good times with, even just talking. She found this genuine enough and was touched that there was nothing of the brute in him. Perhaps Henry was right. Even her so-called sisters, whom she hastily consulted in the back room, gave approving nods when they saw his modest eyes looking mainly at the fixtures. The apartment was sticky because of the heat, and it wasn't long before they were lying in their underwear on his bed, and he was telling of how he had become a widower so young, which was a lie, for he had never been married or even in a real relationship twice. Since she had noticed him not noticing the dancers when she returned to the back room to get her clothes, she believed what he was saying, every word of it. There were simple ways, some women had, of telling a good guy from a bad, and her way was as stupid as any. (laughs) Quite soon she found herself giving him head, and was trying her best because he seemed so patently not to be enjoying it. (laughs) When he laid her, he did so with great care and the air of a depressive, which made her trust him all the more. It wasn't three weeks before they decided to live in an apartment together, which caused tension between the man and his roommate until a replacement was found. Their life together was a gentle life of great delicacy and consideration, as they both felt sorry for the man, and he was also harboring... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he was also harboring a great confusion at his sorrowful mood not being alleviated by the presence of this woman with the red hair. Since in their hearts they both expected her to become pregnant, when she eventually did, it was no great surprise. He merely stroked her arm as she lay at the base of the bed and cried about money. I must go live with my sister, she told him. There was no part of her that was enthusiastic about living the life of a dancer with a young child. Do you want to come with me? she asked. He grew anxious at this request, this request and began taking long strolls. His sister lived in a small town with a husband and three kids, and the man, who was from out of town, had deliberately moved out of his town and had barely been in the city a year. When he thought about it now, the woman with the red hair hadn't been so difficult to catch. It was not so terribly hard to find a girl to spend good times with in a metropolis. He didn't know why he hadn't thought of it sooner. He declined and she ran away with her bags and her tears. But it wasn't so easy the second time around to get a nice girl, and the man soon grew lonely. After a few months, he was forced to take in a roommate, but the one he could find was smelly and young, with a belly that hung out without discretion. (laughs) This situation made the man even more lonesome than before, and it was one day at one o'clock in the afternoon when he decided to visit the woman with the red hair. Walking past a fountain on his way to the train station, he passed a girl of late teenage years Who was blonde and who he supposed would like the companionship of a man like him. Dragging her into the park, he tore out two thirds of her hair. Thank you.
2: Right, Helen McDonald. (laughs) Yes. She is awesome. Helen McDonald is a writer, poet, illustrator, and naturalist, and an affiliated research scho- scholar at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. She is the author of the best-selling H is for Hawk, as well as a cultural history of falcons titled Falcon, and three <laughs> collections of poetry, including Shaler's Fish. MacDonald was a research fellow at, this is my favorite, Jesus College. Jesus, college, yes. Cambridge has worked as a professional falconer and has assisted with the management of raptor research and conservation projects across Eurasia. She now writes for the New York Times Magazine. Please give it up for Helen McDonald.
3: Hello. Jesus College jokes never stop being funny. I remember like... You know, the shower breaks. Oh, it's okay. Jesus is sending some plumbers. It's just wonderful. <laughs> it's just really great. Um, it's really great to be here. There's a lot of you. I'm kind of nervous. Um, Sheila, that was amazing. I can't possibly compete with that last line. I just like like this. It was an amazing story. Um, I'm going to read a bit from this book you might have heard of. Um, so basically, if you haven't read it, the story is really simple. Uh, my father um, is a really dear friend of mine, as well as being my dad. This is a real lucky thing for me. He died very suddenly in two thousand and seven of a heart attack, and I was stricken. And I decided to deal with my overwhelming grief by training a goshawk. Um, I do not recommend this as a way of dealing with bereavement, but I was, you know, set upon this. This uh, they're famously um, renowned as the most. For I don't know. I've tried a lot of times to try and explain what a goshawk's like to the interested layperson, and I tried for a while to do military aeroplane analogies, but unfortunately not everyone knows every model of a military aircraft so that didn't work. And I finally decided that I would do it by, basically goshawks are the Christopher Walkens of the bird world. (laughs) So a few years ago I was in Connecticut giving a talk in a library and I said this, and usually people laugh because it's kind of funny and it's very apt and there was dead silence. And I'm like, shit. No one here knows who Christopher Walken is. (laughs) Anyway, I get the rest of the talk, and then afterwards, this stream of anxious people come up to me and said, "You know, he lives in this town. He's a really nice man. He's not a psychopath." <laughs> Sorry, Christopher. So I buy this goshawk um, on the internet. It sounds worse than it was. I, I, it was a recognised falcon breeder. You can't take wild birds in Britain. It, I, I've been a falconer for years. It's, it's not as dodgy as it wasn't Craigslist, basically. So I'm on the Scottish I It's like a drugs deal. I got 800 pounds in my pocket. I'm smoking a cigarette, I'm wandering up and down, I'm off my face on Red Bull. <laughs> and this man comes towards me with these boxes. And I want to read this section because it's the first time I see m- this hawk that has to become really a life-changing presence in my life. In my life. That's tautologist, <laughs> i quite scared of this. Okay, there's a key, there's a man, there's a box. It's an old TV box, it's all very recyclable. <laughs> Another hinge untied, concentration, Infinite caution, daylight irrigating the box, scratching talons, another thump, and another thump. The air turned syrupy, slow, flecked with dust, like the last few seconds before a battle. And with a last bow pulled free, he reached inside and amidst a whirring chaotic clatter of wings and feet and talons and a high-pitched twittering and it's all happening at once, the man pulls an enormous, enormous hawk out of the box and in a strange coincidence of world and deed, a great flood of sunlight drenches us and everything is brilliance and fury. The hawk's wings barred and beating, the sharp fingers of her dark-tipped primaries cutting the air, her feathers raised like the scattered quills of a fretful porpentine. Two enormous eyes. My heart jumps sideways. She is a conjuring trick, a reptile, a fallen angel, a griffon from the pages of an illuminated bestiary. Something bright and distant, like gold falling through water. A broken marionette of wings, legs and light splashed feathers. She's wearing jesses and the man holds them for one awful long moment. She is hanging head downward, wings open like a turkey in a butcher's shop. Only her head is turned right way up and she is seeing more than she has ever seen before in her whole short life. Her world was an aviary no larger than a living room and then it was a box. But now it is this. And she can see everything. The point source glitter on the waves, a diving cormorant a hundred yards out, pigment flakes under wax on the lines of parked cars, far hills and the heather on them, and miles and miles of sky where the sun spreads on dust and water and illegible things moving across it that are white scraps of gulls. Everything is startling and news stamped on her entirely astonished brain. So I was living in a college house at the time, and um, I brought her home, I kept her indoors. I had a spotted tablecloth on the floor with big white spots on, green with white spots. In fact, it, and I used to wipe the droppings off every morning. And I remember a few years later, I went for dinner with my brother's house and they had this new tablecloth and it was the same one. <laughs> and I just felt really odd about eating off it. Um, <laughs> Also, college, college accommodation—the only cat, the only thing you're allowed to keep in a, in a college house is a cat. So I told everyone it was a cat. So I thought it's kind of like a cat with wings, isn't it? It's quite le- leopard-like. So I basically did the whole, got into the whole thing, train the hawk, positive reinforcement. You do not menace a hawk. You cannot train a hawk. You cannot tame a hawk through any kind of negative reinforcement. You cannot shout at it. It's not a social animal. It doesn't understand being in trouble. So, you know, unlike my mom, bless her. Um, <laughs> can't believe I said that. I love you mom. So it's all done through gifts of food and to get her used to people I would take her out along round the streets in Cambridgeshire. I don't know if any of you have been to Cambridge in England. Have you anyone? Yeah. Oh my god all of you. That's really scary. So it's quite an eccentric place now but there are only a certain number of ways you can be eccentric in Cambridge. For example you can wear tweed with holes in and speak Latin generally in the street and that's fine. If you try carrying around a bloody great hawk in the evenings, people will say things. So I remember one kid shouting at me, "Harry Potter!" <laughs> and I'm like, "It's not an owl! How dare you!" And then most of all, this woman with women with a little kid, and she just—I heard her sotto voce, sh- sort of lean down and say, "Don't go near the hawk, lady, darling." <laughs> So this is just a bit of what it's like training this hawk. She was my escape from all it was, and she was life for me. She just boiled with life and newness and everything that wasn't death and sadness. It's bright after heavy rain, and the crowds of closing time have gone. On this second expedition from the house, Mabel, I called her Mabel, because what else do you call a goshawk? There's actually a tradition of giving hawks names that are the opposite to their characters. If you call a hawk the killer or thunderer, it will sit on a fence post and squeak at you. Um, I have a friend with a goshawk called Baby Doll. Even he's embarrassed about that and calls her BD, but Mabel was about right. She's tense. She looks smaller and feels heavier in this mood, as if fear had a weight to it, as if pewter had been poured into her long and airy bones. The raindrop marks on her tight feathered front run together into long lines like those around a downturned mouth. She picks fitfully at her food, but mostly she stares, taut with reserve about her. She follows bicycles with her eyes. She hunches, ready to spring when people come too close. Children alarm her. She's unsure about dogs. Big dogs, that is. Small dogs fascinate her for other
4: reasons.
3: (laughs) After ten minutes of haunted apprehension, Mabel decides she's not going to be eaten or be beaten to death by any of these things. She shakes her feathers and begins to eat. Cars and buses rattle fumily past, and when the food is gone, she stands staring at the strange world around her. And so do I. I've been with the hawk so long, just her and me in the house, that I'm seeing my city through her eyes. She watches a woman throwing a ball to her dog on the grass, and I watch too, and I'm as baffled by what she's doing as the hawk is. I stare at traffic lights before remembering what they are. Bicycles are spinning mysteries of glittering metal, and the buses going past are walls with wheels. What's salient to the hawk in the city is not what's salient to man. The things she sees are uninteresting to her irrelevant until there's a clatter of wings we both look up there's a pigeon a wood pigeon sailing down to roost in a, always, falconers and aviators all do this you can always tell them at a distance they're always sort of doing this sort of stuff with wings so I'm sorry about that it's a tell <laughs> she sees this pigeon sailing down to roost in a lion tree above us time slows the air thickens and the hawk is transformed It's as if all her weapon systems are suddenly engaged. Red crosshairs, she stands on her toes and cranes her neck. This, this flight path, this thing she thinks, this is fascinating. Some part of the hawk's young brain has just worked something out, and it has everything to do with death. Hadn't really thought it through. (laughs) Goshawks are probably the most predatory and highly strung of all birds of prey. (laughs) I was running away from death by training a hawk that I knew would hunt. Hello. Um, so I went out with her, I went out with her. I'm not gonna read anymore, I'm gonna just talk a little bit about what happened. So I went out with her, um, flew her every day, she chased things, she caught them as she would do in the wild. I feel it was a, it was an astonishing escape. And um, the problem is when goshawks catch things, they just sort of sit there and start eating. At some point, obviously, the thing they're eating is gonna stop being alive. And I couldn't let that happen, so I had to run in and put these things out of their misery. I became a strange, feral creature. Um, I really did become a goshawk in my imagination. I remember I did a bit of teaching at that time and one day I walked into class and everyone stared at me and I realized I had rabbit blood all down my trousers. (laughs) You can't come back from that. Even if you're doing Dover Beach. And I got madder and madder and madder. And when I was out in the countryside, it was a bit like I was on drugs. Everything lost its name. Everything became beautiful and complicated and dark. I had no money, so I was eating what the hawk caught. Obviously, I would cook that, and the hawk would has raw. (laughs) I remember one extravagantly terrible meal of stewed elderly rabbit and crumpets. Don't eat that. Um, And I got madder and madder and madder and madder. And eventually, I went to a doctor's, and I told him what was going on, and he said to me, I think you might be depressed. (laughs) So I got on the drugs and came back, and I flew the hawk, and it was all magical. So I might, I might, have I got time to just write, read one tiny bit more? Um, yes. <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed about all this now. I was a strange creature. Um, so hawks molt during the summer. Um, Goss hawkers in particular. You'll put your hawk in a big aviary to loaf and relax and get fat and grow new feathers, and partly because you want them to grow lots of strong new feathers, and partly because you're bloody exhausted after a, you know, five months of going out every day with a goshawk. hawk. So I get her into the aviary and I say, well, Mabel, this is your home for the next few months. She looks down at my hand as it pulls each jess free from her anklets and now she stands on my hand wearing nothing at all. She cocks an eye up to the moving clouds and then examines her surroundings. She follows the line of the roof to the corners, peers at the cinder block foundation walls. I remember that moment when I first met the hawk and flinch inwardly at the knowledge that now she will forget me again. So, goshawks are meant to forget you instantly. If you lose a goshawk, you're meant to, if you don't get them within three days back, they'll have forgotten you. So, I was like, this is it, this is a big moment. So, I put my hand out and I drag the tips of my fingers down her teardrop splashed front. And I know that when I see her next, she'll be a different color. She'll be grey and white and her eyes will be the burning orange of glowing coals. And I cast her off and she lands on a branch facing away from me. And I say, I'll miss you. No answer can come, and there's nothing to explain. I turn and walk out the door, leaving the hawk behind. My friend Tony's waiting outside, his eyes crinkled into a smile. Come inside the house, he says. He knows what I'm feeling. And in I go where the dogs lie flat on the kitchen floor, tails wagging, and the kettle is whistling, and the house is very warm. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Okay. Donald Margulies won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for Dinner with Friends and was a finalist twice before for Sight Unseen and Collected Stories. His many other plays include Country House, Shipwrecked and Entertainment, Brooklyn Boy, and the Tony-nominated Time Stands... Tony, Tony... Okay, Tony Award-nominated Time Stands Still and the Obie Award-winning The Model Apartment. The film of his screenplay, The End of the Tour, which will be showing on Friday night, But David Foster Wallace, should be awesome, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, was nominated for the Film Independent Spirit Award and the UCLA Scripter Award. See, people make up words all the time. Scripter? Award for Best Screenplay. His newest play, Long Lost, just premiered off-Broadway last week. Please give a warm welcome to Donald Margulies.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Hi. 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 I'm, I'm about to do a very foolish thing. I'm going to uh, do two characters in a two-character scene. But I think I think you're going to figure out who's talking. <laughs> um, this is the first scene of my play, Brooklyn Boy. Uh, Brooklyn Boy premiered in 2004, and in the scene that I'm about to read, can you hear me okay on my? Yeah. When I get this way, is okay? Yes. Closer to the mic. Okay. Um, so the first scene of the play takes place in Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn. Um, The wall-mounted television is on. Its back is to the audience. The soundtrack of an old movie barely audible. Manny Weiss, in his 70s, dozes in a hospital bed. His breathing is labored. He is ill. Several IVs are attached. His son, Eric, who's in his mid to late 40s, dressed casually but well, carrying a hardcover book, the Daily News and the New York Post, enters and watches him breathe. He drapes his coat and umbrella over a chair, puts his gifts on the crank table beside an abandoned food tray and sits. He watches the movie on TV. Soon Manny awakens and sees Eric and says, Jesus, I must be sicker than I thought. Eric says, hi. Manny says, what time is it? Eric looks at his watch, 2.43, day or night? Day. How long have you been sitting there? Not long. How long have you been sleeping? I wasn't sleeping, Manny said. I I was just closing my eyes. "Uh Uh-huh, Eric says. Manny says, fix me, meaning his position in the bed. Eric raises the bed electronically and puffs up pillows to prop up Manny. Higher, lower, lower, Ah. Manny says better Eric says I don't know leave it the hell with it thought you were out of town I was Eric says I was in Miami can't keep track of you when'd you get back last night and I'm leaving again tomorrow again Manny says Eric says tomorrow I go to LA I wanted to see you Manny says all the way to Brooklyn just to see me (laughs) gee I'm honored your wife with you No. I never see her, Nina. She's always busy. She is busy. She sends her best, though. That's nice. Got any news for me, he asks. What kind of good news? You know. Eric says, no. No good news. Manny says, but I thought maybe I had something to look forward to. Eric refers to the TV. says, what movie is this? What? I'm trying to figure out what movie that is. Ronald Coleman, Shelley Winters. Manny says, don't ask me, it was black and white. I left it on. They both watch. Eric says, a double life? Manny shrugs. I think it is, Eric says. Ronald Coleman's an actor playing Othello who starts confusing the role with real life. Manny shrugs. They watch. Eric says, see? She says, Desdemona. His what? Never mind, haven't you been watching it? I've been looking at it, yeah, but that doesn't mean I've been paying attention. Eric turns it off. Hey, his father says. Eric says, you weren't watching it. I did not say that, turn it back on, Manny says. Okay, he turns it back on. I like having it on, it gives me something to look at. Well, excuse me, Eric says. Mind if I mute it at least? I don't like having to compete with the television. Do what you want, Manny says, as long as you leave the picture. Manny stays fixed on the silent image. Eric says, so? How are you feeling? Manny shrugs. How was your night? Terrific, Manny says. Really? No. What do you think? It's like Klein's basement in here. Nurses in and out all night. You should see what goes on here. Eric says, has the doctor been in here to see you today? Which doctor? Dr. Patel? Which one is he? the oncologist. The Indian guy? Yeah. Has he been here today? I don't know. Last night, maybe. This morning. Who can keep track? Eric says, I thought if he was around, I thought maybe I could talk to him. Manny shrugs dismissively. Manny says, what's it doing out there? Still raining? Eric says, stopped. Manny says, boy, it was really coming down before. Eric says, I brought you the papers. You want to look at the papers? Nah. You sure? Words are too much, Manny says. Can't concentrate. I'll leave them right here, Eric says. Has that in case you, you change your mind? Manny shrugs. Eric looks over at the food tray. You didn't eat much lunch. Manny makes a disgusted sound. You didn't want your chocolate pudding? Ugh, tastes like chalk. It looks fine. Then you eat it, Manny says. <laughs> Eric does. He makes a face. Ugh. Manny is amused. He says, see, you didn't believe me. Eric says, you want an orange? Not too much they can do to an orange. (laughs) Manny shakes his head. You want some? Can't. I got these sores in his mouth. Eric hands him a section. Come on. You've got to eat something. It's vitamin C. It's good for canker sores. Here. Manny takes it. I don't like the stringy part. (laughs) Eric says, I'll peel off the stringy part. And he does. Eric says, has Aunt Rose been to see you? Manny shrugs. She comes. And? And nothing, she sits, she cries, she goes. <laughs> Eric says, so, Dad, the book tour. Miami, you said. Miami, Sunrise, of Raton. Manny says, what for? Eric says, book signings. All those places you sign books? Uh-huh, what happens? I read an excerpt, a selection, and then I sign books. That's what you do, you sit there and sign books? basically, and people buy them from you? From the bookstore? Yeah, I don't actually collect the money. And people really come to these things? Yeah. Like how many? Depends. This Jewish center outside of Cleveland last week, maybe 20? That's not very much. Yeah, but the other day at a bookstore in Miami, over 200 showed up. 200 people bought your book? No, that's how many came to hear me read. Maybe 40 bought the book, 40 or 50. Yeah, and that's good? (laughs) For a serious novel? That's not bad. (laughs) What do you mean by serious? Eric says, not schlock. A literary novel, a book that aspires to be literature. Oh, well, hoity-toity, his father says. (laughs) Eric says, "Uh, did you uh, happen to catch the Today Show the other day? No, I missed it, I know you told me. Yeah, that's okay, Eric says. Your aunt saw it though. Oh yeah, what'd she say? She said, why didn't you wear a tie? Yeah. <laughs> that's all she said? She said, you look tired and you should have won a tie. <laughs> I was supposed to look like a serious writer. What, serious writers don't wear ties? I didn't know that. You see the president running around without a tie? the president isn't a serious writer. (laughs) That was Bush, by the way. Uh, uh, Eric feeds him the orange. Mmm. Manny says. Good? Manny nods. More? Manny nods. Eric feeds him. So don't you gotta get up early for that, Manny says? For what? The Today Show thing. 4.30. 4.30 in the morning? Uh Uh-huh. They sent a car. What kind of car? A town car. A town car? Really? Just for you? <laughs> Just for me. Wow. A Lincoln. All to yourself. They could have paid your cab fare. It would have been cheaper. <laughs> they feed you breakfast? Oh yeah. In the green room backstage. You know. Like what? Coffee and bagels. Donuts. Danish? Uh-huh. Buffet style? All you can eat? Yeah. You go back for seconds? <laughs> no. Why not? All that free food. What are they going to do with it? I was a little nervous. I wasn't that hungry. So what what do you do there all that time? They brief you. They put on makeup. You put on makeup? Yeah. You did? Couldn't you refuse? They do it so you don't look pale on camera. Your aunt said you look pale anyway. They couldn't lend you a tie while they were at it? I didn't want to wear a tie. I wore a nice pullover. I thought I'd look good. I could get you a tape if you'd like. How am I supposed to watch it? Don't they have VCRs here? Here? In a hospital? Not a hotel. I'll bet they do. They must. If you want me to look into it, I will. Manny shrugs. Okay. Eric says, I'll I'll ask on my way out. Manny gestures disinterestedly. Eric says, I thought you might get a kick out of seeing your son talking to Katie Couric on national television, that's all. Is that who you talk to, Katie Couric? Uh huh. The little one, Perky like? Yeah. Jane Pauly, I liked. When she left, it all went downhill from there. Eric gives him the book he arrived with. Manny says, What's this? It's for you. Manny says, My glasses. Eric finds the glasses, hands them to him. Manny reads the cover Brooklyn Boy. Well, wow, how do you like that? By Eric Weiss. So this is it. This is it, Eric says. Look how fat it is. Wow. It's so heavy. How many pages? Not that many. 384. 384? That's a lot. Not really. 384? What do you have to say that would take 384 pages? <laughs> You'd be surprised at it. Just. He looks at the author's photo. Who's this? This is supposed to be you? it's such a good-looking picture, I almost didn't recognize you. <laughs> Thanks. Who took the picture? Nina. Very nice. Put this over there, will you please? Wait, 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 I want to show you something. Eric turns to the dedication page and shows it to him. Manny reads it. From my mother and my father. That mean me and your mother? <laughs> yeah. Where's our names? What what do you mean? Don't we get our names? Couldn't you say for Phyllis and Manny Weiss? Then there wouldn't be any confusion. What confusion? There is no confusion. This could be anybody's mother and father, Manny says. It says my mother and father, it's my book. You couldn't have put in a little plug for me and your mother? A little plug? It would have given your mother, may she rest in peace, such as to see her name in print. When do people like us ever get to do that, huh? When we die, that's about it. (laughs) Stick it over there. Dad, I dedicated my book to you. This is my book. I know it's your book. I worked on this book for years, you know I did. So? So? This is what I've been doing. It's been six years between books, and here it is. Finally, Dad, it's a bestseller first time in my life this Sunday Brooklyn boy is number 11 how do you know? I know my publisher told me. How does he know? Sunday paper's not out yet (laughs) the trade finds out in advance 11? Yes you mean there is an 11? I thought it only went to 10 (laughs) no it goes to 15 (laughs) since when? since I don't know since several years ago. Huh I thought it only went to 10. No. Wow, good thing they made the list longer, huh? (laughs) Lucky for you. Eric says, yeah. Dad, do you have any idea what this means? What? This is potentially life-changing. Do you realize that? After all these years, I've broken through, Dad, and I'd really appreciate it if you looked at it for more than two seconds. I did look at it. I looked at it. (laughs) Never mind. What do you want from me? I want you to read it. Now? Of course not now. I hate to do that to you, I'm a very slow reader. <laughs> I want you to pretend that it means something to you. That's all, just pretend. It means something to me. Yes. What do you mean means something? Means something, has significance to you. Shh, you gonna yell at me now? This isn't just an ordinary book somebody brought you. Do you understand that? No, I'm very stupid. It's your son's book Something your son made You didn't make it, you made the binding (laughs) Eric, disgusted, puts the book on the table Manny extends his hand Hey, hey, give me the book Give it to me Eric hands the book back to him You know reading's not my thing I do know that 380 odd pages, that's a hell of a lot to ask for somebody like me I know I can't make any promises I understand if I have the time, what do you mean if you have the time? <laughs> You've got a pressing engagement I don't know about? Ha ha, I tried reading those other books of yours, you know, the first two, I know. The Something Something and that other one, the, the Gentleman Farmer and the Airy. The what? The Airy, the Airy, right, the Airy. I still have no idea what the hell an Airy is. Yes, you do, I've told you many times an Airy is a bird's nest. Then why couldn't you call it the bird's nest? I don't understand that, something people could pronounce. No wonder nobody bought it, they did not ask for it. People bought it, just not in very high numbers. And what do you know from Gentleman Farmers? It's a metaphoric title. A what? Nothing. So it's about Brooklyn, this one? It's set here, yeah. See, that's why it's popular. Didn't I tell you to write something popular? You did? Yes, I did. You don't remember, but I certainly did. You should do very well with this one. A lot of people come from Brooklyn. They can relate. Birds nests, farmers, who gives a shit? (laughs) It takes place in the 60s and 70s. When I was growing up, you'll recognize a lot of it. Oh, yeah? Like Ebbets Field, Sheepshead Bay? Sort of. I mean, you'll recognize the people. Oh, you mean like famous Brooklynites? No. Barbara Streisand? She's from Brooklyn, you know. I know, not Barbara Streisand. Did I ever tell you Neil Sedaka's parents had a hot dog stand in Brighton? Yeah, you did. Just as you got on the boardwalk, right on the ramp, uh-huh, there was Sedaka's. I remember as a kid. Did you know I knew him as a kid? Yes, I did. Did you know Lauren Bacall is Jewish? Uh-huh. Isn't that unbelievable? Not really. <laughs> Dad, Dad, what I meant was you'll recognize the characters. It's about a family. Who? people like us. Like us? us. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-oh. Am I in it? Uh-huh. Kind of. Yeah? Is your mother? Oh, yeah. By name? No. Dad, when I say you're in it, I mean there are things about the father that are a lot like you, but it's not you. What's his name? Arnie Fleischman. Arnie Fleischman instead of Manny Weiss? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Fleischman was your mother's maiden name, you know. I know. <laughs> and what does Arnie Fleischman do for a living? Sell shoes like me? No, he's a barber. He doesn't work in a beauty parlor. No, he works in a barbershop. He cuts men's hair. Because beauty parlor, automatically you think uh, uh, what's your name in it? Well, the son's name is Kenny. Kenny Fleischman? Kenny Fleischmann instead of Ricky Weiss? Uh-huh. Are there any pictures? No, Dad, Dad, it's not an autobiography. It's a novel. What does that mean? I don't understand the difference. It means it's a story. It's made up. I thought you said it was us. They're like us. They're inspired by us. Now you lost me. They're people like us, but not us? Right. In other words, it's not the Weiss family of Ocean Avenue? Right, Dad. The Fleischmans live on Nostrand. Manny says, so that's what you did? You called us the Fleischmans and moved us to Nostrand Avenue? (laughs) Yeah. And that makes it a novel? (laughs) Well, not just that. Gee, I should write a novel,
0: Manny says.
5: (laughs) Go right ahead, Dad. Watch out, I might make it to number one. Great. I hope you do. So remember, not everything in the book actually happened. But some of it did, Manny says? Yeah. So is there stuff in here I'm not going to like? I don't know. I hope not. Because I don't care what you say about me, but your mother, I don't want you saying any, anything nasty about your mother. What makes you think I'd be nasty? It isn't nice when a person can't defend herself. Is your wife in here too, or are you, are you let off easy? <laughs> no, a character based on Nina comes in later toward the end. Like, look, you're just going to have to read it and see for yourself. I will. I'll give you a full report. Good. How's that, I'll give you a review. Great, I'm anxious to hear what you think. I can be a pretty tough critic, you know. (laughs) Believe me, I know. (laughs) Manny turns his attention to the TV. Eric watches him. Dad, Dad, what are you thinking about these days? What do you mean what am I thinking about? You've been lying here with all this time to think what's been going through your mind. How the hell do I know? Any big thoughts? Like what? Oh, I don't know, like God, the meaning of life, that sort of thing. Have you been thinking a lot about mom? Minnie says, my eyes hurt. Do me a favor, turn down the light. He turns off the overhead light. Dad, we have to talk about what happens when you leave the hospital. I'm not leaving the hospital. What do you mean? I'm not leaving the hospital. This is it this time. How do you know? I know. Minnie says, looks at the TV and he says, oh, look, look who that is. That's what's her name? Shelley Winters. Who? Shelley Winters. That's right. Boy, look how young and thin she was. Look at her. She was beautiful. I tell you, Ricky, time is the worst damn thing in the world. Eric looks at his father, then at the TV. End of scene.
2: That wonderful. Thank you so much. Time is the worst damn thing in the world, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Melissa Phoebos is the Gene Cordova nonfiction award-winning author of the critically acclaimed memoir Whip Smart and the essay collection Abandon Me, which the New Yorker called mesmerizing. Abandon Me was a Lambda Literary Award finalist, a Publishing Triangle Award finalist, an Indie Next Pick. I guess it was pretty popular. Um, And was named a Best Book of 2017 by Esquire, Book Riot, The Cut, Electric Literature, The Brooklyn Brooklyn Rail, Salon, The Rumpus, and others. Her second essay collection will be published in 2021. Please give it up for Melissa Phoebos.
4: I am so over the moon to be reading with these writers I am um, it is such a privilege to be teaching and hanging out this week with some of my very favorite writers um, so thank you to my colleagues and to Lighthouse and all the Lighthouse staff um, you all I'm sure know this but this is a really special place you should totally give them money <laughs> um, I'm gonna read from uh, my second book, Abandon Me, and, you know, as I was deciding what to read tonight, I was remembering. Um, so when I first published this book, I went on this really long book tour, and um, I started my book tour in the Pacific Northwest, and my dad lives in the Pacific Northwest, and my dad is a really sensitive Puerto Rican sea captain um, who writes songs about like dogs and his ex-wife, my mother, on his acoustic guitar and um, he decided to come to my first four readings. And I don't know what any of you know about Abandon Me, probably not much, but one way of describing it would be an alternating series of scenes um, reflecting on the difficulty of being the daughter of a sea captain (laughs) and graphic scenes of lesbian sex. So curating a reading one reading for my dad, and it's just like a one-time thing, and I had to figure out three. So he did cry in the audience on one of those nights. Um, so uh, four. So on my fifth reading, I was in uh, Portland, and he was not there, and I was having coffee with a friend before the reading, and I was saying, God, I'm so glad to not have to do a dad-rated reading tonight. And she was like, well, what are you gonna read? And I was like, well, I can't decide if I'm gonna read this passage from this essay about how much I love hickeys or this passage about how much I cried during my childhood. And she was like, well, do you think Portland is more of a crying city or a hickey city? And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Portland, but we both looked at each other, and I swear, in perfect unison, we were, like, crying. (laughs) So it's like, so now every time I'm going to read from the book, I, like, the question just sort of, like, alights in my mind. Is this a hickey audience, or is this a crying audience? And um, I'm sure some of my class members are here, um, but they will understand why I decided it was a crying audience. Um, So I'm going to read from the title essay in in Abandon Me, which is made up of 65 very short chapters um, that move sort of all over the place. My hope is that they cohere. Um, I'm going to read a few different sections that do not actually appear in this order in the book. In the small Texas town, the trains ran all day. Each morning, we woke at dawn and sat in an orange chair by the window to watch the sunrise spill its mad colors across that enormous sky. Every sunrise was a carnival of color to the soundtrack of those trains. They barreled across the desert, and their rumble in my chest, the bleat of those whistled, reminded me of the foghorns on the Cape. Whistle is too weak a word. When a human makes such a sound, it expresses only a few things terrible grief, earth shattering climax, triumph or pain. Not broken finger pain, but dying pain, child birthing pain that kind of sound is all body all heart out of mind it's ironic that both train whistles and fog horns should evoke such animal feeling as they both exist specifically for their listeners here i come they say get off the tracks if you don't want my 200 tons of steel barreling into your chest steer your prow elsewhere if you don't want to wreck against my shore not a threat but a warning i can't stop myself so it's up to you stranger One afternoon from a nearby cafe table, a local told us a story about a train conductor who'd fallen in love and had his heart broken by a woman in town. Every time he passed through, he'd sound his train's whistle all the way, borrowing its wail for his own so that the whole town could feel his busted heart hum in their chests, rattle their teeth, shake their skulls. And after that, every time a train passed and I heard that cry, I wondered if it was a warning or a wailing or a hallelujah. I thought of my own heart, how much I feared her breaking it. It would sound like that, I thought. It would be the only sound I ever heard again. It would be wrecking against the shore of one person for the rest of my life. I feared it so much that I broke my own heart every day that I loved her. I felt it when I watched her reading in a cafe, scratching her head and twirling a pen with her long fingers. I felt it when we drove 30 miles to swim in a pool of water risen from deep underground, her skin warm and smooth as clay under my hands. On the way back, we stopped at the largest rattlesnake exhibit on the planet where we paid $5 to two petrified men in a warehouse with a hand-painted sign steeped in the stench of snake shit and stood in front of a rattler yellow as a fingernail and thicker than her leg leaned against me and I whispered that I didn't have any underwear on because I had swam in them and she laughed and told me a lady should always wear underpants to visit the largest rattlesnake exhibit on the planet. (laughs) When I made love to her in that chair by the window, dawn glowing her body like a fruit split open to its wet center, I felt it, the way you feel a fall just looking over the edge of a roof. Will you love me forever, she asked me. Yes, I said. I couldn't know, though. When that whistle spills over the desert, you can only hear the call of your own heart. And when I looked at her, I wondered, are you my wrecking shore? Are you my third rail? Or are you my hallelujah? In his Confessions, St. Augustine asks God why tears are so sweet to the sorrowful. Euripides in The Trojan Women asks, how good are the tears, how sweet the dirges. I would rather sing dirges than eat or drink. I too have always had a taste for tears. I was a colicky baby and an emotional child. I cried for the fox and the hound, for baby birds in our backyard, for bullied classmates on the school bus. And most of all, I cried when the captain left. I watched him walk away again and again, and I sobbed thinking, come back, come back. I hugged my crying mother and I thought, I will do anything. When he was gone, I kept a close watch on my mother who was good at hiding her loneliness, but not good enough. Some days, a panic gripped me that she would never return from the grocery store. I stared at the driveway, come back, come back. I decided I needed to toughen up when I turned eight. On the bus on the way home from school, I imagined each of my family members dying. When tears rose in my eyes, I suppressed them. You can't cry, I told myself, or they really will die. Most importantly, I stopped crying when the captain left. I didn't have to try, I just stopped. In fact, I barely remember his departures after the age of eight. When my mother cried, I wrapped my arms around her, dry-eyed. After I stopped crying, I became clumsy. I tumbled downstairs and walked into walls. I tripped upstairs and burned my hands on the stove. I cut my fingers while chopping vegetables, and once I gave myself a paper cut on my eyeball. It's not as bad as it sounds. I mean, it's not good, but. (laughs) A therapist once told me that extreme clumsiness in children is a sign of depression. Severely depressed people do not that often cry, nor do severely neglected babies. Tears are an essentially hopeful act. Inherent to them is the body's belief that someone is watching. When the psyche gives up hope that those cries will be answered, the tears stop. I was not severely neglected nor severely depressed, but I did stop hoping for rescue. My mother begged the captain to stop leaving. I woke from dreams calling his name, but when he was gone, he was gone. No amount of crying could summon him. Four months into loving her, I cried. Once I started, I couldn't stop. It was not voluptuous, it was not ecstatic, it was not sweet, except in the way that a sweet thing is a siren, its call impossible to ignore. Except in the way that a sweet thing, a thing you cannot ignore, can ravage. If sweet means irresistible, then my tears were sweet, but they were not pretty and they did not taste good. In the past, I rarely cried over lovers. I never fought with lovers, I never waited for lovers, and I never lost control. My worst fear was to be needy. Is that anyone's worst fear here? Are you guys all, hi Kelly. Um, You're all comfortable with your needs. Asking to have them met. That's good, this is for you, Kelly. When I thought about neediness, I felt like there were snakes on me. When I thought about asking for something that someone wouldn't or couldn't give me, I felt like I had stepped in shit. Women who obsessed over men who did not give them what they needed repelled me as if need were a contagious disease. I looked at the brokenhearted, at the needy, at the unrequited, at women who waited like my mother had waited, and I thought, never. In Aesop's fable of the fox and the grapes, the fox desires the grapes. The grapes, however, are out of his reach. So the fox tells himself he does not want the grapes. The grapes make him sick. He convinces himself. When I was still a child, I had decided that grapes weren't so sweet after all. I would rather have lived in a world without the sweetness of grapes than in this world where grapes were often out of reach and did not lower themselves no matter how hard I cried. At 32, I bit her lip. That sweet flooded my mouth and I remembered. I often kidded about the voracious need that must be hiding deep inside me. I sat for hours in therapy sessions, searching for my feelings. I wanted to get in touch with them. I thought that when I finally found them, it would be like a reunion with a childhood friend, emotional, surely, but also sweet, a reward for all my hard work and therapy. I did not think that I was leaving messages for a serial killer. I did not think that my feelings receiving my invitation would arrive on my doorstep like a cabal of mad women and refuse to leave. I thought that the host of the party decided when it ended and her guests went home. But feelings have terrible manners. They are like children or drunks. They are mad. They gorge as the starved will gorge until they are sick, until their stomachs split, as you or I would if we were exiled for 30 years. (laughs) They do not leave when you want them to. They leave when they are finished. Sorry if that's bad news for anyone. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Melissa. That was wonderful. I have, I have so many feelings and so many questions about this. Um, I wrote them down. Did your dad cry in a good way or a bad way? Did he cry in a good way or a bad way? In a, good way? in a good way. That's always good, wonderful. Again, Father's Day is coming up soon. Um, and what does snake shit smell like? Well, yeah, We'll talk about that later. Okay. And then, my God, you're so lucky you get to say, my dad was a Puerto Rican sea captain. I mean, is that the coolest thing ever? That's pretty awesome. Thank you. Next up, I'm very excited about this. Um, because I'm a poet and, you know, poetry is the highest art. Yeah. (laughs) Kidding, I don't want to get in any fights, (laughs) because I will cry, because I I don't like violence. Ross Gay is the author of four books against which bringing the shovel down, catalog of unabashed gratitude, winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award and the 2016 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award and most, re- most recently The Book of Delights which came out in February. Ross is a founding board member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a nonprofit, this is hard to say, free fruit for all food justice and joy project. He has received fellowships from Cave Canem, the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Please give it up for poet and nonfiction writer Roskate.
0: Hello. Good to, good to see you. What did you say? You. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. This is such an amazing whole thing. Um, it's almost Father's Day. Give money to LitFest. <laughs> um, I'm going to read you a poem and then, you know, an essay or two. That's okay. This is, uh, this is the first poem in this book called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. And it's called, um, you know, whenever I read, I'm a little nervous that my fly is down. <laughs> it's not. <clears throat> to the fig tree on Ninth and Christian. Tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up the racket in the lug work, probably rehearsing some stupid thing I said or did, some crime or other. The city, they say, is a lonely place until, yes, the sound of sweeping and a woman, yes, with a broom beneath which you are now too, the canopy of a fig its arms pulling the September sun to it. And she has a hose too and so works hard rinsing and scrubbing the sidewalk lest some poor sod slip on the silk of a fig and break his hip and not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. (laughs) The light catches the veins in her hands when I ask about the tree. They flutter in the air and she says, take as much as you can, please help me. So I load my pockets and mouth as she points to the step ladder against the wall to mean more. But I was without a sack, so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth, loose one from a low slung branch and its eye wept like hers, which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remained of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree, looking into it like a constellation pointing. Do you see it? And I am tall, and so good for these things. And a bald man even told me so. When I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach, like there was a baby in there. It was hot. His head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night, and maybe never said more than five words to me at once, but gave me figs. And a man on his way to work hops twice to reach at last his fig, which he smiles at and calls baby. Come here, baby, he says, and blows a kiss to the tree, which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky, sun-baked soil of Jordan and Sicily but no one told the fig tree <laughs> or the immigrants there's a way the fig tree grows in groves it wants it seems to hold us yes I am anthropomorphizing god it I have twice in the last 30 seconds rubbed my sweaty forearm into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful, eating out of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree at the corner of Christian and Ninth. strangers maybe never again. Thank you. This is called The High Five from Strangers, Etc. So this is from the Book of Delights. This is just like one day I decided, it's actually how it happened. One day I was like, oh, I'm gonna write a bunch, essay a day about something that delights me. You know, then it's not all delightful. (laughs) This is called The High Five from Strangers, Etc. Today I was wandering the square of the small Indiana town where I gave a poetry reading at the local college. Long parentheses, A feature of the small town Midwest, a city hallish building in the center, always with some sad statue trumpeting one war or another. This one had a guy in one of those not very protective looking hats they called a helmet during World War One. He's carrying, naturally, a gun. Jenna Osman's book Public Figures alerted me to the ubiquity of the gun, the weapon, in the hands of our statues. A delight I wish to now imagine and even impose, given that beneficent dictatorship of one's own life anyway, is a delight. All new statues must have in their hands flowers, or shovels, or babies, or seedlings, or chinchillas. We could go on like this for a while. (laughs) But never again, never ever, guns. I decree it, and also decree the removal of the already extant guns, let the emptiness our war heroes carry be the metaphor for a while. As I was finishing circling the square, I passed a storefront garage with huge Make America Great Again signs. It was a foreign auto repair shop and inside were mostly Toyotas and Hondas. (laughs) I settled into the coffee shop, took my notebooks out and I was reading over these delights, transcribing them into my computer. And while I was working, headphones on, swaying to the new De La Soul record, Delight, which deserves its own entry, <laughs> I noticed a white girl. She looked 15, but could have been, I suppose, a college student, standing next to me with her hand raised. I looked up, confused, and pulled my headphones back. And she said, like a coach or something Working on your paper? Good job to you! High five! And you better believe I high five that child, <laughs> and her pre-ripped Def Leopard shirt and her itty bitty Doc Martins. <laughs> For I love, I delight in unequivocally pleasant public physical interactions with strangers. <laughs> what constitutes pleasant? It's no secret is informed by my large-ish male and cisgender body, a body that is also large-ish male cisgender and not white. In other words, the pleasant, the delightful are not universal. We should all understand this by now. A few months ago, walking down the street in Umbertide, in Italy, a trash truck pulled up beside me and the guy in the passenger seat yelled something I didn't understand. I said, como? The Spanish word for come again? Which is a ridiculous thing to say because even if he had come again, I would not have understood him. He knew this, and hopping out of the truck to dump in a couple cans, he flexed his muscles, pointed at me, and smacked my biceps hard. Twice. I loved him. (laughs) Or when a waitress puts her hand on my shoulder. Forget it if she calls me honey. Baby, even better. Or someone scooting by puts their hand on my back. The handshake, the hug, I love them both. Once I was getting on a plane, And shuffling down the aisle, I saw, sitting at the front of Coach, reading a magazine, my great Uncle Earl. I got down on my knees and put my hand on his forearm, and I said, Uncle Earl, it's me, Ross. He looked at me kind of quizzically, as did the woman traveling with him, who did not look one bit like my Aunt Sylvia. (laughs) Which which made me look back at my not Uncle Earl, who looked maybe like my Uncle Earl's second cousin 20 years ago. And though it was benign and no one was hurt, it was a little weird. And they looked confused. All the same, given his Uncle Earl died about six months later, I'm delighted I got to see him. (laughs) And touch him gently. Lovingly. About a thousand miles away. (laughs) And I'm just gonna read you one more. (laughs) This is called Tomato On Board. What you don't know until you carry a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane, is that carrying a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane will make people smile at you almost like you're carrying a baby. <laughs> a quiet baby. <laughs> I did not know this until today, carrying my little tomato about three or four inches high in its four-inch plastic starter pot, which my friend Michael gave to me, smirking about how I was going to get it home. Something about this at first felt naughty. Not comparing a tomato to a baby, but carrying the tomato under the plane. And so I slid the thing into my bag while going through security, which made them pull the bag for inspection. (laughs) When the security guy saw it was a tomato, he smiled and said, I don't know how to check that, have a good day. (laughs) But I quickly realized that one of its stems, which I almost wrote as arms, was broken from the jostling and it only had four of them. So I decided I'd better just carry it out in the open and the shower of love began. (laughs) It was a shower of love I also felt while carrying a bouquet of lilies through the streets of Rome last summer. People, maybe women especially, maybe women my age-ish and older especially, smiling with approval. A woman in a house dress beating out a rug on a balcony shouted, Bravo! An older couple holding hands both smiled at me and pulled into each other, knitting their fingers together. My showers might have been disappointed to know I was not giving the lilies to a sweetheart, but to my friends Damiano and Moira, who had translated a couple of my poems into Italian and were so kind as to let me stay at their place a few nights while I was passing through. On the way to the vegetarian restaurant Damiano's ex-wife owns with her partner, we walked by what I'm pretty sure he said was the biggest redbud tree in the world. It stretched for yards, lounging periodically onto the mossy earth. Its beautiful black bark glistened by the streetlights. Though translation is an act of love, so my showers needn't be disappointed at all. Before boarding the final leg of my flight, <coughs> one of the workers said, Nice tomato, <laughs> which I don't think was a come on. And the flight attendant asked about the tomato at least five times, not an exaggeration, every time calling it, my tomato. Where's my tomato? How's my tomato? You didn't lose my tomato, did you? She even directed me to an open seat in the exit row. Why don't you guys go sit there and stretch out? I gathered my things and set the little guy in the window seat so she could look out. <laughs> when I got my water, I poured some into the little guy's soil. When we got bumpy, I put my hand on the little guy's container, careful not to snap another arm off. And when we landed and the pilot put the brakes on hard, my arm reflexively went across the seat, <laughs> holding the little guy in place, the way my dad's arm would when he had to brake hard in that car without seatbelts to speak of and one of my very favorite gestures in the Encyclopedia of Human Gestures. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Another father appears, wonderful. Thank you so much, that's great. I have to do this, I'm sorry. My tomato. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's terrible. Please take that out of the podcast. Whoever is doing the editing of that, thank you very much. Okay. Oh, I have to. Oh, so um, Ross very, very attractively modeled our lighthouse hoodie, and I think Rachel will be modeling it as well. So if you're cold, I feel like a salesman. There are some available up on the porch. All right. Our last reader. Rachel Cusk is the author of three memoirs, A Life's Work, The Last Supper, and Aftermath, and several novels including Saving Agnes, winner of the Whitbread First Novel Award, The Temporary, The Country Life, which won a Somerset Mom Award, and the critically acclaimed Outline Trilogy. Please welcome Rachel Cusk.
6: Hello, hi there. Uh, This is the end, so I will be quick. Also, it's cold, and yeah, I have the sweatshirt on, which maybe means I'll never be able to leave Denver. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, fellow readers. Um, Hello to my students, who I've really enjoyed reading your work this week and being with you. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the end of uh, Kudos, which is the end of my trilogy. Uh, which means it's completely impossible to explain <laughs> quite <laughs> what I'm reading um, the, uh, the books essentially uh, unfold through people talking um, so I will read someone talking uh, it's a woman talking about um, in a European city about uh, her life as a divorced person she's called Felicia The arrangement has been, Felicia said, that whoever is looking after Alessandra has the car. So if Stefano has her for the weekend, the car goes with her. But most of the time she is with me, so the car stays parked outside my apartment. When something goes wrong with it, Stefano expects me to take care of it. Two weeks ago, she said, it needed entirely new tyres, and it cost almost half my salary for the month to replace them. It was after I had replaced the tyres that I received a letter from Stefano's lawyer. The letter said that my salary was not sufficient to justify having a car and to cover the cost of maintaining it. I had not noticed, she said, that the car was gone. I was getting Alessandra ready for school and we were late. But when I read the letter, I looked out of the window and saw that the car was not there. Stefano has his own key, she said. So I realized that he must have come during the night and taken it while we were sleeping. I had a very full schedule for that day and it completely depended on having the car. So I was shocked by the fact that he hadn't warned me. But also, she said, I realized that unconsciously i had taken a feeling of security and legitimacy from the car because even though it was expensive to maintain, the fact that I shared it with Stefano seemed to offer me some kind of protection. Until that moment when I looked out of the window and saw an empty space where the car had been, I had been holding on to a delusion when even an hour earlier I would have sworn I had no delusions left. And even then, she said, I remained deluded because I picked up the phone and called Stefano thinking there must have been some mistake. He was very calm, she said, and he spoke to me as if I was a naughty child that has to have their punishment explained to them and when I began to cry he became even calmer and he agreed it was very sad that I had brought these misfortunes on myself with my lack of self-control this morning she said I got up at six I dropped Alessandra at school at seven and I cycled to the college where I teach translation to give a class at eight then I cycled back and caught the train out to the suburbs where I had two English and French classes to teach at the school there Then, she said, I took the train into the city and went to the library where I had been asked to give a talk on cataloguing translated texts before coming here. Alessandra was unwell this morning, she added, and so I had half expected to get a call from the school saying that I needed to come and collect her, in which case I didn't know what I would have done since my schedule was completely full. But fortunately, the call didn't come. I did, however, receive another call, she said, which was from my mother, saying that she was tired of storing certain boxes and small pieces of furniture that she had agreed to keep for me, and that if I didn't come and get them by the end of the day, she would be putting them out on the street. I reminded her, she said, that since I am staying in the apartment of a friend, I have nowhere to put these items, and neither do I now have a car in which I could come to collect them, while in her house there is a big attic where they can sit, disturbing nobody. She said she was tired of having my things in her attic and repeated that she would be putting them out on the street if I didn't come and collect them by the end of the day. It was not her fault, she said, that I had made such a mess of my life and that I didn't even have a proper home to live in. You came from a nice home, she said, and yet you expect your child to live like a tramp. I said to her, "Mamma, it was different for you because Papa took care of everything and you didn't have to work. And she said, yes, and look at what all your equality has done for you. The men no longer respect you and can treat you like the dirt on their shoe. Your cousin Angela has never worked, she said, and she has been divorced two times and is richer than the Queen of England because she stayed at home and took care of her children and treated them as her asset. But you don't have a house or any money or even a car, she said, and your child goes around looking like an orphan on the street. You don't even get her fringe cut she said so it covers her eyes and she can't see where she's going and I said "Mamma, Stefano likes her hair that way and he insists that I don't cut it so there is nothing I can do and she said I can't believe I brought such a woman into the world who allows a man to tell her what to do with her own child's hair and she repeated that she no longer wanted my possessions in her house and she put down the phone Last night, Felicia said, a friend came to visit us at the apartment, a woman friend Alessandra hadn't met before. We were talking about my work, and Alessandra suddenly interrupted. Mama's always talking about her work, she said to this friend of mine, but in fact it isn't work. What she calls work is what other people would call a hobby. Don't you agree it's a bit of a joke, Alessandra says to this friend, to call it work when all she is doing is sitting reading a book? And the friend says no, she doesn't agree and that translation is not only work, but also an art. Alessandra looks at her, and then she says to me, Mama, who is this person in our apartment? She isn't very well dressed. In fact, she looks like a witch. (laughs) My friend tried to laugh, but I could see she was very upset at being spoken to in this way, especially by a five-year-old child. And I couldn't explain to her in front of Alessandra that this is how Stefano is finally getting his revenge, by poisoning my own child against me, and filling her with his own arrogant nature. I remember, Felicia said, when Stefano and I first separated, he took her away with him one day and didn't bring her back. He was meant to have her for only a few hours, and he kept her for ten days, and refused to answer my phone calls and messages. During those ten days, I nearly went mad with grief. I don't think I slept for more than a few minutes at a time, and I paced around and around our apartment like a trapped animal, waiting for the situation to end. It was only later, she said, that I understood that the pain I endured during those days was not the pain of responsibility. It was not a consequence of my fight with Stefano, but rather was the result of calculated cruelty to the child as well as to myself. His theft of Alessandra was a show of strength, and a way of proving his power to me, that he could take her away and bring her back when he chose to. If we had fought physically, she said, he would likewise have won, and this was what he was making clear to me by removing the child at will, that if I thought I had power, even if only the old power of the mother, I was completely mistaken. I had not, moreover, found freedom by leaving him. In fact, what I had done was forfeit all my rights, which he had only extended to me in the first place and made myself his slave. There is a passage in one of your books, she said to me, where you describe enduring something similar and I translated it very carefully and with great caution, as if it was something fragile that I might mistakenly break or kill because these experiences do not fully belong to reality and the evidence for them is a matter of one person's word against another's. It was important I didn't get any of the words wrong, she said. And afterwards, I felt that while you had legitimized this half reality by writing about it, I had legitimized it again by managing to transpose it into another language and ensuring its survival.